I'm Pippa Kelly. Welcome to the third series of Well I Know Now in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. Since launching my podcast during our first COVID lockdown last year, I've chatted to people living with dementia, people caring for loved ones, to artists, authors, broadcasters, cartoonists and actors, representing, recording and charting the lives of those with the condition. I've spoken to the chief executives and founders of dementia organisations, big and small, and each and every one of my guests has taught me something new about the condition and how it affects us all, about myself, about life and what's important in it. We've mulled over what we know now that we didn't before dementia came into our lives. My mum lived with vascular dementia for her last 10 years. Were I to sum up one of the main things that I know now that I didn't this time last year, and what a strange, unsettling and isolating year it's been, it's the huge power of connections, of real skin-to-skin human connections, of bear hugs and whisper-soft touches, and what we mean to each other and give to each other just by being there. It's often the seemingly smallest things that matter most. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Will I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person? Dementia teaches you this too. Dadland, the 2016 Costa Book Prize winner, was described by one of its judges as the most unconventional biography she had ever read. And it is. And it's also extraordinarily beautiful, moving, funny and haunting. It tells the story of Lieutenant Colonel Tom Carew, a dashing maverick and daredevil hero of the Second World War, who was awarded both the Distinguished Service Medal and the Croix de Guerre. In 1943, he joined Churchill's Special Operations Executive, becoming a Jedba, an undercover guerrilla agent in first France and later Burma. As well as being a natural rebel made for the role, the three times married Carew is father to four. He's an exciting, if challenging, dad. Who wouldn't want to boast to their school friends that their Secret Service dad had been described in the Times of India as Lawrence of Burma? It wasn't until his final years that Carew's daughter found, up in his attic, a hall of yellowing letters, diaries and papers. Through them, she painstakingly pieces together the details of his remarkable life. The heartbreaking twist is that even as she's discovering her dad, he's succumbing to dementia. He's leaving her. She is Keggy Carew, and she's here today to talk to me about her dad and his dementia, about the twists and turns of family life, about forgiveness, and about that strange, intangible thing called love. All themes that are skillfully woven into Dadland as its mesmerising narrative flits about in time. We sit together in the garden and watch the sun set across the pasture she writes of her and her father. Insects rise, the day's last rays snagging their gossamer wings. He is completely immersed in it. I watch him watching. He is far away. We sit together, floating in and out of each other's consciousness. His world is fading, coming and going in front of his own eyes, each name hazy, each face a blur of memory, every house he lived in, every girl he loved slip-sliding away. 
Night is beginning to surround him. He stands helplessly, ears ringing with noises he cannot understand, words that don't make sentences, sounds that don't make words, faces that are completely new to him, places that he knew so well until yesterday. The hourglass has slowed and quickened simultaneously. And yet, the idea of one day him not being in the world seems an impossibility. Keggy's powerful debut work is imbued with the sadness of losing such a man and of him losing himself. How could someone so fearless and dazzling have come to this, is its constant underlying refrain. It's an exploration not only of Tom Carew, but of how we all change and develop through life, yet remain fundamentally the same. And about how our parents' ways, their talents and their flaws flow inexorably into us no matter how hard we push back. So, Keki Karoo, welcome to Well I Know Now. Well, thank you, Pippa, and thank you for that very lovely introduction. And um, I really think I should have had you speaking for me about Dadland all this time. <laughs> you do it better than I do. Thank no, you so much. That is not true because I've heard you speak. <laughs> um, well. So, but, you know, it really resonated with me, Deadland, because my mum had dementia and it was mm. beautifully written. And it's very rich, actually. It's a very rich book, I felt. So it was difficult to know where to start our chat. But there's only one place to start, I suppose, and that is with your dad. So can you give us a picture of what he was like when you were growing up? Yeah, he was... Um, I mean, everybody was very jealous of us with our dad because he was just incredibly good fun you know I mean he was always a bit wild always very surprising you never knew what was going to happen it was like sort of living in a game of poker where you know he and he was a very good poker player and I mean what we didn't know then was he was just super trained to be you know a guerrilla agent dropped into enemy territory and survive mm. and raise and, uh, so we didn't know that about him when we were very young mm. we did know that he had this sort of very romantic aura about him and he was quite mysterious he was full of not so much practical jokes much more there was one time a friend of mine very old friend of mine reminded me where we were all having a picnic in the dormobile for instance and he was shouting out to us kids we were you know young at the time he said who wants white bread and who wants brown you know what kids are like mm. they always want something and so Katie would say I want brown and I would copy Katie I'll have brown and my brother would go I'll have white and somebody else would go white and so you know in rapid speed our sandwiches were delivered correct you know white brown mm. whatever they were and then my saw Katie and her mother laughing because they'd flipped their sandwich over and the other side was white. So he'd <laughs> made them all before. And yeah. uh, I mean, that was just very typical, very simple, but it was just, that was constant. It was constant things. And um, he encouraged us to be free. His way of being really resonated with me probably more than my brothers and sisters. I was probably the, the one that skived off school and, mm. you know, did my own thing and he enjoyed it and so he enjoyed the educative part of that yes. um, and I suppose it was his way of teaching us is to sort of learn stuff for ourselves so he was a great outlier and in many respects that made it easier I knew I got who he was and I really understood when he used to come and stay with us how much freedom he needed mm. and one of the things I noticed with other people and they're 
parents with dementia is that they try to control them and they try mm. to restrict them because mm. they were frightened, you know, they might break something, fall mm. in the pond. And my experience was absolutely the opposite of that. I realised that that was the, completely the wrong thing to do is to give particularly for my dad to give him as much freedom as possible but it was funny because it was very the beginning was the most difficult because it was frustrating and terribly frightening because you you know you really realize what's happening and I first discovered what was going on with Dan when I found a note in his pocket that read my name is Tom Carew but I have forgotten yours and I Mm. discovered that he was showing this note to everybody Mm. and he was trying to outwit it. So he was mm. trying to hide it. Mm. And because he was clever, he could manage to do that. So we had, you know, but then of course we discovered all these notes everywhere. And as things started to unravel for him, like, I mean, mm. I, I, I looked at him in a way like an onion where each onion skin that came off, there was a, still the same onion under there. It was just a little bit less of the onion than it was before. And, mm. but it, but the essential core was always the same. And he, mm. He was very inventive and he used his skills of just being unusual and funny. When people laughed, he enjoyed that. So that was like a success for him. Mm. And he was able to work with that. Um, Mm. And it Mm. became easier in a way. There was quite a long period where... We lived in this new world of wonder where you, you touched on it a bit with that reading where, you know, the pigeons when you've <laughs> not seen them before. Mm. Yeah, he came to me one day and went, who put this on? And I went, what? And um, he pointed to his beard. Who put this on? I haven't seen this before. <laughs> right. And it was like, I didn't put this on. They, yes. you know, and he had a couple of people come in and clean the house and stuff like that. So he sort of started blaming them because he didn't always have a beard. You know, he'd only had this beard in the last few years. And um, in a way, it was sort of the question I was asking, who are you? You know, mm. who, who am mm. I? Who mm. are you? And, mm. And, mm. and the journey of Dad Lamb was this. I've described it as like catching a train and there's you're going one way and the other person's going mm. the other way. You're separating, but you're on the same track in a way. And the other thing that reflected the book for me was the sort of the way his mind was like an exploded jigsaw, was a bit like mm. the book. And it was a sort of kaleidoscope of memories. And in a way, that's, I don't even find that that's not dissimilar to how I am, you know. I'm in bed thinking about different things at different times. Things pop into your head. And that really was manifesting in the way his brain, you know, was he was suffering from these little strokes. Mm. Mm. And mm. The, Gosh, there's so much in all you said that I wanted to talk about. I mean, just to go right back to one of the first things you said, which I think was a lot of people don't do, as you rightly say, is the way you gave your dad the freedom that you knew because you knew him so well that he would need because he lived sort of in your garden, didn't he? He wasn't in the well, house with you, is that? When he came to stay, he'd come and stay for a few weeks at a time and then he'd live in his shed. He first had these dogs, which were a complete nightmare. The psycho um, dogs. The psycho dogs. And actually that was one decision that was a really tough decision for us to make and that was a slightly controlling decision because there was a point where we had to split those dogs up because Mm. they were just rabid because he loved them being wild and crazy but Mm. you know it they they were becoming you know a real problem and in fact it worked out really really well you know we were just Oh, the nightmare heartache we went through. We found a home for one of them, the difficult one. And it was a brilliant home with a young boy who went running and could exercise it properly and kept the little, the the smaller brother. And 
suddenly everybody seemed much happier. It was extraordinary. Mm. And dad didn't even miss, didn't even realize mm. the other one had gone. But so mm. we were worrying without need to worry, but we didn't know that at the time. And of course, you know, we all had different ideas between my, mostly mm. my sister and I looked after dad and the boys would be around, but not much, you know, what boys are like anyway, but mm. they, they had their lives and their family and stuff. And, Nikki, my sister, and I sometimes just completely disagreed. And that, you know, that's hard. You know, you do fight yeah. a bit. But, you know, we are best of friends now. We got there in the end, but we had a few humdingers on the way. <laughs> mm. Mm. That's always tricky when, when you... Yeah. You, yes, I mean, it's almost inevitable, isn't it, actually? They're not all going to absolutely agree. The other thing that, you know, and, and I hear this a lot from people with dementia themselves, that... There is something, if you want to really try and be positive about it, rather wonderful, as you quite rightly say, about sort of seeing everything afresh with the, these mm. new eyes um, almost every day or every five minutes sort of thing. And there was a wonderful bit where your, uh, I think it was your husband, Jonathan, and your father were watching um, Attenborough, you know. Oh, yeah. And it the was dinosaurs. The dinosaurs. And, of course, your father <laughs> thought that they really were. Yeah. This was real, and he was completely yeah. taken by it and thought it was yeah. wonderful. And, yeah. you know, obviously it, it, it yes. wasn't real, but... Yeah, but no, he was on the edge of his seat. My God, my God, because, of course, they do it really realistically. Mm. And it had, mm. the, you know, it had David... Was it David Attenborough or somebody else? But anyway, it had that completely right, you know, the voice mm. and the mm. way, you know. Mm. And actually, why wouldn't... You know, they existed. Yeah. Why wouldn't they suddenly be... Well, of course, we know why why, why they wouldn't mm. be around mm. because mm. of us. But, you mm. know, they, it wasn't beyond the realms of reality because they did exist once. But it was this new thing. And, you know, mm. and I remember standing at the door thinking, I'm mm. not going to spoil that for him. Mm. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think you can get a bit of, you know, a bit of magic like that. And, and, and one has to grab it when you yeah. can because there's not, not much of it with dementia. But there are moments... The other magic, in a way, I mean, the book goes into this in quite a bit of detail, but, you know, I had not necessarily had a riff with him, but we'd certainly become a part because mm. I got on so very badly with my stepmother. Mm. And my stepmother by that time had died. And it was a chance, I mean, it sounds odd, but it was a chance to, we had time and we hadn't had time for so many years. And always mm. when we were kids, he was always busy because he was trying to, you know, earn some money to mm. pay the bills etc so it was an unusual stretching of time you know it was like these days were long and they were you know how a day when you're a child is much longer than it mm, is now mm, it mm. was a bit like that mm, uh, time mm. flipped and mm, mm. um yeah I remember sitting in the garden a lot with him it was we had a surprisingly amount a good amount of wonderful weather at that time mm. and I can remember sitting up I said you see that dot in the sky dad and you go, yes, you know. And I say, that's got about 600 people in it and the tea trolleys. and uh... <laughs> Which is extraordinary. I still can't get my head around that when I yeah, see the dog. Yeah, but he knew exactly when you were playing with him. Mm. You played in a slightly different way and it wasn't mm. patronising. It was just an allowance for the fact that he couldn't remember anything. Mm. Mm. I had another guest on my last series whose mother had dementia and she didn't always, I think, get on quite so well but she said when her mother developed dementia just as you're saying they found this and they really they just kind of sat together and watched the world and everything yeah. slowed down everything has to slow down and yeah. there can be something quite precious about that too and that leads into another really interesting aspect of your book you describe it as sort of rebuild dad rebuild me and the way you're discovering 
yourself as well as your father as you delve into his past. And I do want to get onto your father's incredible past, actually, because you know a lot of people listening won't know exactly what your dad did during the war, which was extraordinary. But that's interesting, isn't it? How you you're woven together almost, you you and your parents. You know, one is. Yeah, I think it is. And I think there's a lot of stuff that, you know, is really problematic. I mean, there was, you know, we had quite, a, in a way, a dysfunctional family, you know, a really bad parental breakdown. My mother had a terrible mental collapse. And my dad, he was a brilliant, brilliant dad, but he wasn't the best husband, you know, and it was tough. He'd been incredibly successful in the war. And he'd been free to do what he wanted. I mean, it was an extraordinary position at 24 years old to be mm. jumping, you know, behind the lines. and Just rip- explain literally. a bit about what he did. Cause- well, what he did, I mean, he was a gunner in Gibraltar as a very young 20-year-old at the beginning of the war. And he'd seen a notice on a notice board. You know, if you read between the lines, it was obviously this war officer were asking for volunteers to go behind the lines and it was an incredibly rigorous selection process Mm. and so his friend made him apply and he went along and he passed because they were what they were looking for he was never the top of anything because he was always doing something you know that wasn't quite what, mm. what was required. I mean, mm. he was on his own journey, on his own path. He was and a maverick, wasn't he? He was a complete and utter ma- maverick. But that's exactly what they were looking mm. for. So some of the people who were sort of top of the, the class were not getting through, but it was the people who were incredibly inventive or who had a very solid, I want to say core, but it wasn't so much that. It was just this sort of... Yeah, there was something unbreakable about him. Yes. And there always mm. was something unbreakable mm. about him. Even with his dementia, and wasn't there? That was what's it, so interesting. Yeah, he was just very, very resourceful and very, very inventive mm. and very left brain, very, very always thinking and, and clever, you mm. know, in, mm. in, in his way, very clever. And um, they picked him and he went through this extraordinary training that the British were really, really good at doing. And they got all the Americans came over and were trained. In fact, the head of the CIA, Bill Colby, was in Mm. dad's lot. And that's how dad got to know him. Mm. And they were dropped as these very young men behind the lines in France at night where they had to raise guerrilla resistance that was already there, but it was not functioning terribly Mm. well. They didn't have weapons and they were just French guys that were trying to do what they could, but it wasn't very well organized or very well weaponized. And so Dad was like the expertise coming in to meet up with these groups. And then after D-Day, where the war in Southeast Asia was going on, and at that time they thought it would go on for another six years, you know, he was the first Jedbra team, by which time he was running his own team, to be dropped behind the lines in Japanese-occupied Burma. And he just absolutely loved the Burmese, got mm. on really, really well with mm. the people he was working with. And suddenly he came into his own. It was as if everything came at the right time and he could fulfill every bit of his character for mm. to, in his potential. Everything worked for him. And he, yes, became pretty well known out there and ended up being dropped in again to a liaise with Aung San Suu Kyi's father, the General Aung San. Mm. And I didn't know any of this until I really started delving around quite deeply in the National Archives and in the mm. British Library and found some extraordinary things. I didn't, I mean, I knew, you know, I knew that that's what he'd done, but I didn't know how central he was mm. and how how good he was at it. 
but then everything started linking in. There were lots of stories that suddenly connected and I was able to work it all out. Mm, because there was footage, wasn't there, that you saw? Yes, yes. Um, and, and, um, <laughs> and there were a couple of interviews that he'd done as yes, well. So you had yes. very, very good um, materials. I had an extraordinary amount of materials, which is a complete miracle considering mm. how both of us completely lax about all sorts of losing things. But mm. actually, both of us, I kept letters that were mm. quite important. I had my grandfather's diaries, which were also really helpful. I had, because his name is Kuru, it was incredibly easy to, for me to find. Although it was, there, I have to say, it was hours and hours and days and days in the National Archives. But, you mm. know, it wasn't like looking for general you know Smith. Arthur Brown, mm, who was mm, actually mm. you know one of one of the radio operators, but mm. so it was very fruitful um, the searches and very very exciting and I mean very hard to keep on track because there were so many things I wanted to go and read up about, but um, mm. it, yeah, it was a fascinating time. No, I thought that actually because when you found the sort of personal notes and there was a, some point where he had to get his lawyer involved, didn't he, or he's an accountant saying, "Can I afford?" Because you'd gone off. Cause that's oh, quite I interesting because you had this, kind of, you had this yeah. kind of daredevil, adventurous <laughs> yeah. spirit as well. Yes, um, yes, I, I, I did. I, I think some of it was sort of showing off to him, wanting to impress him when I was very young, mm, you know. And then I just, mm. I think it's sort of, it was probably natural, um, mm. a bit of everything, but mm. yes, and a bit of wildness and a bit of. But you're so it struck me, and you sort of said this at the beginning that you were so like him. I do like that tale about the hardware shop and the check that you tell right at the very beginning of the book, and it does really encapsulate both of you. Could you just yes. relay that quickly? And it's absolutely true. What it was was I was about eight, I suppose, really, really very mm. young, because we lived in Fairham at the time in Hampshire. And um, we walked up the street and we were, went into the hardware shop and he was buying some paint. And he, you know, this life of living with him, even then I knew there was a sort of slight, you had just had to be on your guard all the time with him. He was um, stacking the paint up on the counter and I suddenly thought up this trick. And he got his checkbook out and he was um, writing a check for it. And um, I just peered over the counter and I said, but daddy, that's not your name. <laughs> and um, he looked down at me, sort of glaring at me. And then the shop counter, the shop guy was just, he, he was looking, looking at dad, looking at the checkbook. Yes thinking what the hell's going on yeah. and then dad was sort of he was a bit flustered and mm, I knew mm. that was the first time mm. I'd got one over you on him got it, yeah and I knew I'd sort of gone up in his in mm. his estimation at the same mm. time I put him in a difficult position mm. and I sort of I remember literally prancing down the mm. street with him and mm. he was laughing and mm. and so I it was like a prize in a way mm. but and that was our relationship pretty much all the time. He kept doing it all, you know, even when I was really quite adult, you know, he'd, mm. he'd tell you something. And then three years later, you'd discover that actually it was true and you hadn't believed him. Mm. And he'd never, ever let on at oh, the time, yeah. ever, ever. I loved his note as well when you'd, because he didn't really mind you bunking off school, did he? No. And then one day, for some <laughs> reason, you, you obviously knew because you're so like him, you kind of understood. So you looked at the note. Yes, I had to look at the note because the way he licked the envelope didn't look very good to me. <laughs> and so I opened the note on the bus because I'd just got off to go riding. And the thing, I mean, we'd never survive now in, mm, in, mm. in this day and age. Mm. I just wouldn't have survived mm. um, 
So anyway, I opened the note. I was on the bus. It was your teacher's note. note, obviously, the note that as a, yes. as a responsible parent who was meant to have written to your yeah, teacher. Yes, so I told him, can you please write a sick note for my teacher? And I opened it up and it said, I'm sorry Keggy was not at school yesterday. She had a bad hangover. That's all it said. <laughs> now, how old were you? I was about 12, 13. <laughs> You know, old enough to go riding for mm. the day, but not, mm. but needing a, a sick note, old enough to catch school on, you know, mm. uh, 12 or 13, mm. I think. And mm. I kept, of course, I couldn't give it to them, went home furious and he mm. laughed. But um, mm. that was the way we sort of lived. I mean, it was always like that. Yes. And, and what was so wonderful in the book is that even when his dementia really becomes pretty advanced and a wonderful thing actually happened didn't it timing wise because not long after you'd really begun to research into your father's Jedba as we passed when your stepmother died there was this 60th reunion of the Jedbas wasn't there near Peterborough mm. Um, mm. so that was a wonderful opportunity and there were what 60 or 70 them there weren't there or quite a lot yes. of the 300 I don't think that... quite that many there was quite a few with their wives and yes. daughters or sons or whatever and it, it was just amazing it was a very enlightening time because I saw they were all wild, you know. They were like all these octogenarians and they were all heckling and walking mm. off and they were completely mm. unmanageable and it was hilarious. But and your I realized... couldn't, he didn't know their names, did he? That they knew his? Yes, they all knew him. But he did, he sort of did. You know, he knew a few. The first time there was two reunions we went to. The second time he, it was really quite bad. The first one, you know, it came and went and uh, he was reasonably respectable in the first one. And the second one was a little bit more hairy. But yes, no, the, are you thinking about when we got onto the bus and he was saying, oh, those, his medals? Do, do you no, was, no, carry on though. Oh, uh, well, that, there was one little, this is shows how, uh, you know, he, he was so naughty really. I mean, he had lots of medals because mm, he had a mm. DSO and it was pretty good at that mm, age. Mm, mm. And on the last day we had to go to Peterborough Cathedral and they were doing a special service for them and they were told all to wear their medals and I, we got onto the coach and I was sitting next to dad and he had this funny look on his face and I said what, what's the matter dad and he he puffed I said what's, what's the matter and he said my medals I said what's the matter with your medals dad it's wonderful I'm so proud you know I'm so really proud it's great to see you with them on and he went yes but and I went what he said that mine is so much heavier than theirs. <laughs> <laughs> and he was quite egotistical, you see, mm. you know. So but mm. he was he wasn't malicious with it. There wasn't an, there was mm. nothing nasty. There was not one nasty mm. bone in his body. I never mm. saw it in all my life. Mm. But he was quite he mm. was quite egotistical, so it's, uh, it's funny. Mm-mm. But what's very interesting is how he maintained this spark, this core of him, this essence yeah. of him, even yeah. you know, even when dementia is sort of taking him away. Yeah. That's so fascinating. The th- story I was thinking of was when, um, of course, almost inevitably, you two missed a coach, didn't you? You went somewhere on one of these reunions oh, where yes. you went back to the Milton Hall or whatever it was, and then you missed the coach. Um, and then Yes, Your father, again, you know, with a <laughs> tremendous wiliness and guile, you, you watched him go. He just said, I'll deal with it. You explain it. You describe yeah. it. Well, no, you probably could remember it better. I'd completely forgotten this. Yeah, we'd missed the coach because he'd been off and he was talking to some nice girl, a yeah, daughter. Woman, yes, yes, a daughter of a general or something, a French, a lovely French mm. girl, one of the French, because uh, they were, these the Jebras were, they were in thirds. There was a third Americans, a third French, and a third English. They went in these tripartisan teams. Yes. 
Yes, we missed the coach because we were talking in the garden. And that's the other thing. Coach just went off, didn't check anybody, just went off. And so we were stuck and we were at Milton Hall, which was quite a way outside Peterborough. There were no buses or anything. So he he goes, and he was very fit in those days at 80. He was, you know, running around quite happily. Mm. And then I saw him just charge off into the main building. And, and I suddenly saw, just as he was entering the door, he was suddenly limping like crazy. He <laughs> could hardly <laughs> And of course, he just sort of turned on this old man, looks just to get the manager to drive us back to Peterborough. Came out grinning. But I think that's is that the, is that yeah, what you meant? Absolutely. Yes. And and you, and he and he blagged this lift back, didn't he? Yes, he blagged the lift back. I mean, you know, well, you were always all right as long as you were with him. He would come up with something. But yeah, it was funny. <laughs> no, very very funny. And there were a couple of little passages actually, which I think showed very well how even as he was losing himself, forgetting, getting frustrated, making you very frustrated actually as well because he was always wanting jobs and things, wasn't he? And Oh, yes, uh, jobs. All this yes. sort of thing. But then how they show his tremendous charisma, his style, his cleverness, his witty wiliness to get himself out of difficult situations which, of course, he got into because he had dementia. So one involved your sister-in-law, and then there was another one. Just a couple. They're very short, okay. so you Shall read, read them, Keggy. Yes, okay. do. Okay, okay. Dad's pockets are full of notes. I find thoughts and messages to himself jumbled up with the notes we have written for him. Tom is 85. You have 60 quid. Keggy is walking the dogs. Anything in coloured biro is him. Ever since I can remember, he switches colour as he goes along. My bath thoughts. I do not go into the bath to clean. I go to think. I realise what the O was I eat every day. I will list every word that has disappeared as the orange has. Age 85, lost memory. Now I must tolerate and compensate. He does learn to compensate. Who am I, Tom? Sarah, my sister-in-law, asks teasingly. We wait, eyes flashing sideways to each other, knowing he doesn't have a clue. He picks up both her hands and looks into her face. You're lovely, he says, trumping us again. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah and it's so simple it's like one of those things it was just very you know he knew he was being tested so you know mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. clever I mean even yeah. the, remarkable what the brain does as well yeah 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 even as yeah. it's been taken away that was the other thing about his words wasn't it because the words when he lost the word for orange he'd lost yes. other words but he would yes. he kept these rather wonderful words like scrumptious and... yes yes he did and that was extraordinary I mean he just did the best with what he had and what he kept was just this positive things and mm. that really was him he would always say thank you and yes and marvelous you know I mean he was that army generation I mean mm. although he mm. was Irish he was brought up you know at that time and he had that accent I suppose although you never noticed it with him because he so wasn't anything but just himself he managed incredibly well with very very little which was yeah it was very very moving very poignant and just very inspiring at the same time mm. did you ever see sort of inklings 
of how much he knew what was going on and what he was having to do. Yeah, I think at the first, you know, it wasn't having any fun with it at first. There was a, a period of frustration where it was terrifying because he wasn't a fool. He knew what was happening and it was scary. Once it was so bad that he couldn't remember what was happening, <laughs> that was easier. And I know mm. it's funny to say that, but it didn't take away from moment by moment life. Mm. But it was very, very, very frightening for him. And, you know, this is where that's what was, you know, we knew because he was trying to outwit it or, or trying to cover mm. it up by, mm. by these notes, which is mm. one of his ways mm. of doing it. Also, again, people with dementia say this to me, you're forced to live in the moment, obviously, by definition, because you can't remember the past mm. and you can't think to the future. And um, as we said before, there's something about that. And in a way... When you're talking about your dad's life when he was younger and this swashbuckling sort of life, particularly when he went to Burma, and then he, he got a bad bout of malaria, didn't he, and had to go to some Indian Ocean Island or something and sort of just be a bit contemplative, it sounds like, to mm, me. Mm. And yes. he said, actually, I would The only ne- time in his life. <laughs> yes, I know. I did think, gosh, he's been forced to <laughs> yeah. stop. Yes. Um, but he says himself, because this is in the papers you find, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but he says, but I would never really have got the benefits of everything because, as you said, Burma sort of, he found himself. I mean, it was absolutely... And he says, you know, but I wouldn't have... If he hadn't had this enforced sort of pause Mm. on the Indian Ocean, he wouldn't have been able to realise all the benefits of Burma because he very much, all through his life, and I'm sure this must have stood him in good stead when he was a Jebba, he lived in the moment, didn't he, in a, in a strange sort of way. And he says that as well. And he also talks about later on, you know, how different, and you talk about it as well, how different he was now to how he would have been when he was younger. And there's one point where you say, I can't imagine my dad like that. But of course, when he was in his 20s doing these things, he wasn't a dad. And that's mm. what all our lives are like. I thought that was these interesting mm. insights, quite deep insights into life that dementia sort of makes you think about. Yeah, I mean, like what you were remembering was a bit where I was speaking to his radio operator and he was telling me a bit where they got completely drunk. And I said to John Sharp, that is radio, because mm. my dad, he never, ever got drunk. Never, mm. never, ever got drunk. He hated drunks and he just mm. hated, well, he just hated, you know, somebody that was drunk, but he drunk, <laughs> he drank lots of wine, but he never got drunk. And I said, that's really surprising. And of course, you know, he was a young man then. He wasn't my dad then. He was, mm. of course, he was a young man. He would drink too much and uh, mm. have a terrible hangover. But I'd never seen that. It was surprising to me. And also, he was never scared of anything, but he would mm. never, ever take unnecessary risks. And so he wasn't a daredevil or he never did, you know, anything that just for the sake of being scary you know he didn't do sort of scary sports or anything like that he did it because he had to do it but of course he wasn't like that when he was younger of course he you know he was going to be like any young man Mm, mm, was mm, at that mm. point and then seeing him in the footage of him Mm. younger than I was you know Mm. so it's just so strange when you have mm, that there's always um, something isn't there about that when you see your mother if you're a girl sort of looking incredibly glamorous and gorgeous you know one's parents were were just your mum weren't they then they weren't these glamorous young things that men were falling over Um, I think that all happens happens to us all that living in the moment thing, though, is incredibly helpful if it's for you. It wasn't entirely 
helpful for us at the time because mm. you know it's also gave him the ability to forget you know forget we were around even though he'd left home and he was sort of get on with his new life and I mean he never did forget us of course but there were times where it would have been I think a bit easier for particularly Nikki and I if he'd been a little bit more aware of possibly how things had affected us mm. and that I think made us both a bit cross sometimes mm. that he was but then his reaction I think would have been what could I've done about it not mm. much at that point you know mm. so he was very very practical you know which stood him in very good stead and he wasn't malicious in any way um, mm. No, and I think, you know, there are benefits to it. I was thinking that it was a very striking passage which really resonated with me when your, in fact, you said it was your poor sister who had to, you had to deceive him to oh. take him to the to the nursing home, of course, and I yes, had to do that, that with my terrible. mother, and it's a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. And she spent ages driving terrible. home because she had to keep stopping and pulling over and because she was yes. sobbing, and I thought, oh, God, yes, I remember that. Terrible. Of course, when you went back to visit him, he was fine, and in fact, he's got himself a girlfriend, of course, <laughs> yeah. being your dad. Um, so there are, there yes. are sort of advantages yes. to okay. it. And again, he'd say, my mother is Irish and I have Irish luck. And mm, mm, he mm. did have some Irish luck because mm. we found the only home for dementia patients, I think probably in the world, where they were allowed to take their dogs and the mm. dog was allowed to just run around the home. Unusual and then. I think it's more honestly, common now, but yes. Do you, I mean, is it? Well, it's amazing because these, this dog was just, you know, not trained. It was allowed to be oh, free. Right. Oh, well, went in sure the kitchen. <laughs> God knows. Yes. And that was so lucky, you know. And so, so typical lucky. of him to find yeah. that luck. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I found it, but it was just yes, lucky. Yes, that it, it was his, his luck. Sort of luck. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Oh, well, thank you. I can't, honestly, I just can't recommend your book highly enough because although it has these wonderful insights into dementia, it's so much more than that. It's this amazing story of your father's life and the way you've woven the two together is very very clever indeed um hence winning the costa prize i mean really well, good really thank exceptionally you. good so thank you very much for coming on well today. thank you pippa it was really lovely to talk and it is a it's a hell of a journey i think the one thing i would say is you know i mean i think you asked in in one of your emails you know the three things and like we've covered mm. them you know that sort of acceptance and but i think when it's down to everything, it's the only thing really is for us to love them. Yes. You know, that seems to be the thing. And it just comes to a purity. When you're a parent or something, it's a complicated love. And when it mm. gets to that stage, it's just very uncomplicated, except mm. for the pressure and frustration. But mm. if that is there, all the other things just fall into place. And all the other things don't really matter mm. if the fridge isn't clean mm. and if the, you know, it's not necessarily a cathartic journey. <laughs> it's mm. very tumultuous, mm. but um, there we go. That was wonderful what you just said about it all coming down in the end to love. Yes, I really think it is. And it, it's a bit like the person, is the, the, you get to the heart of them. Yes, it's pared down, isn't it, to the you essence get, you, you get to the heart of them. And I think, I mean, I've had uh, other people have told me that, they, you know, they've had very difficult times, but that might have been, you know, the heart of the person had had such a difficult time in their own, you know, that that mm. maybe came out at the end. But I was just incredibly lucky to, to see that his essence was so, it was so sweet, you mm. know, it was so mm. sweet, even mm. though he was a complete nightmare a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, but there we go. Mm. Um, better to be 
I don't know, trying and all those things and have a full life, I think. Then. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and not to try. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Keggy. Well, thank you very much, Pippa. Lovely to speak to you. And you too. Keggy Carew was a gem of a guest. She was so fluent and joyful, with an obvious love of her romantic, mysterious, sometimes infuriating father, who never lost the core of who he was, his playful essence, his inventive wit. What a wealth of stories she has to conjure him up and reveal to us all the strange, perplexing land of his dementia, his new world of wonder. Keggy has a glorious way with words and images, her dad's kaleidoscope of memories, the exploded jigsaw of his mind, the game of poker that he's living out in his final years, all perfectly describe the slippery, insidious condition that took her mercurial dad. And there's a lot of him in her. Dadland is a very real and honest account of a father's dementia. It's a gripping tale of the heroic, undercover wartime exploits of a special group of men, a glimpse into another dangerous time seen through a very personal prism. It's also a profoundly moving memoir, a daughter's tribute, and a hell of a read. I would urge everyone listening to beg, borrow, or buy a copy of this outstanding book. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast, and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.